This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Now you can sign up to become a member and get a free audiobook if you go to Audible.com, sign up and choose either the gold or the platinum plan and you will get yourself a free credit. Now you can use that credit to get a book and even if you cancel your membership, you can keep the book. That's at Audible.com. Well, hello. It's been a long time and I'm so glad to be back. Hi. I hope you've been well. I hope you're relaxing and you're kicking back doing whatever you're doing in your favorite chair, your couch, your car chair while you're driving along or you've just, you know, you've put this podcast on, you've curled into bed And I'm going to guide you on that wonderful little night ship thingy to tomorrow. I'll try and be nice and dull and boring if you're trying to go to sleep. And for those who are listening and not trying to go to sleep, I'll try and be relaxing and interesting. Hi, welcome. It's been a while. A lot of things have been happening and I wanted to record, but here I am now. And we're going to sit back and spend some time together just going through the wonderful world that is this place. I have some really cool stuff to talk about, which is wonderful. So let's get started, shall we? You might have heard of this, but if not, I'm going to take you through this because it's one of those situations where I'm reminded about how absolutely and utterly awesome the world is. Have you ever heard of the name Josh? Typical name. There was a situation where... Let me read this out. This is just absolutely and utterly fantastic. Let me get my notes. Here we go. Okay. It was an absolute spectacle in a park in the United States where a bunch of Joshes... I wonder what the plural for Joshes is. Josh I gathering of Joshes. Anyway, a group of Joshes got together and in a friendly, and then just just let me say this up front, a friendly noodle fight to proclaim to be the one true Josh and the right to call themselves by that name. It all began in last April, Arizona. A student, Josh, funnily enough, Josh Swain, jokingly messaged dozens of people who shared his name and challenged them to a fight. It quickly went viral online. It's not as if we were doing anything else, but let's focus on this, right? A year later, dozens of people called Josh arrived in Lincoln, Nebraska, to battle for the popular name. Now, I'll, I'll say dozens, but there was an absolute spectacle of people online. Check it out. Go Google it. It's called Josh Fight. Now, the battle began when two Joshes met in the field and began with a paper, scissors, rock. And then a subsequent massive noodle fight happened. <laughs> <laughs> 
all in good fun. No one got hurt. It was those pool noodles, you know, those big plasticky things that you sort of whack with each other with. It was all good fun, and there was a bunch of Joshes, and they were all sort of fighting. Some people dressed up in Spider-Man uniforms, other people in Roman outfits, because why not? And they fought for the right to be named Josh. There was a lot of other people filming and things like that. And eventually, there was one victory. Um, if you ever seen the movie Highlander? I've, I've been tempted to go back and watch it because it was one of those favourite movies from, from, you know, days growing up. It has a crazy pre- um, premise where some people who don't know why uh, need to battle, you know, because there can be only one. Stars Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery being, well, a Scottish-speaking Spaniard, because that works. I think Sean's the kind of guy that turns up on set and says, okay, you're a Spaniard, and he'll just, you know, respond in Scottish, goes, fine, I'll be a Scottish Spaniard. Sean Connery, he he can do whatever he wants. Anyway, they fight for the right to be only one. An amazing Queen soundtrack ensues. Kind of magic. Check it out. It's fantastic. And I immediately thought of that when this battle for Josh, the right to be called Josh, came out. So there was one winner, one true Josh, a four-year-old boy who walked up and slain his enemy with his red pool noodle and he went... And it was actually adorable in the video. This the uh, you know the big, big elderly not elderly man, but a big man sort of you know took the swings in a spaghetti western style, and then fell over, and the crowd roared. Little Josh, little Josh, little Josh. He was crowned with a cardboard Burger King crown and he is now King Josh he's the right to one to call themselves Josh I love this so much and it is one of those beautiful things when you wake up in the morning and something completely and utterly random just happens and you're just reminded that oh we're all just kids aren't we we really are we are just Awesome kids just wanting to do something silly for the laughter of it. I love how people dress up, you know, in Roman uniforms and Spider-Man. There's always a Spider-Man. And I thought it was fantastic. So that is the story of Josh. Oh, I have news. Okay, so if you remember the past episodes where I talked about my coffee mugs, my favorite coffee mugs, I was going through all of them. There was one that was not in my house uh, at the time. Well, I have good news. I was able to get the coffee mug back. Absolutely. So, it has now been proclaimed the Sunday mug. Uh, I don't really hold myself to that. So, in hindsight, I don't know why I bother giving it a title, but it's the Sunday mug, and I'll be enjoying that tomorrow with my coffee, and it's a good one. It really is. Weirdly enough, I think it was a Gloria Jean's uh, coffee mug. It is it is round and, and smooth, and is just 
just comfortable. You know when you get dressed in the morning with whatever's the... Let's be honest, it's not the most attractive thing in the world. But it feels so comfortable. You just don't care. For the rest of the week and the time, you'll put on the fantastic clothes and the uniforms and all that kind of stuff. But Sunday, that is all about you and your comfiness. That's not a subliminal hint about the title of this podcast, by the way. That's genuine comfiness. So anyway, I have that now. It's back. I will take a photo and I will share it with you online. And so... Yeah, I just wanted to let you know, the the coffee mugs are complete. Am I going through various coffee places and checking out mugs? Absolutely. Again, I have that irrational desire to see every single coffee mug that I try on. You know, do the thing with the, the comfiness of the hand. Does it feel good in the hand? Stuff like that. I had to actually, you know, do the hard decision because there was a fair amount of coffee mugs that I had to you know, make the call and give them to uh, to the Salvation Army here in Australia. So we have the Salvation Army, which goes to there. So they benefited from those because I needed to make room. It was kind of like the Josh fight for coffee mugs, except I could not, you know, accept only one. It was kind of like the Josh fight, except it wasn't Josh's. It was coffee mugs. And instead of one, there was about 15 that remained. Um, there was more before though, yeah, yeah, there was, there was a lot more, but now there's about 15, possibly 16, um, if I was just going to pull a number at the top of my head, I'd say 20 essential mugs, essential. Hey, who doesn't love dogs? I love dogs, I absolutely and utterly love dogs. They, um, I have this belief, honestly, that, okay, so stay with me on this one. So, we are visited by aliens. They come from wherever they come from, um, outer space, obviously, otherwise they would just be earthlings wrapped in tinfoil. They come from outer space, and they come down, and they, you know, we want to give our, our best impression of Earth and you know, just sum it all up, and, you know, we could send out, you know, jazz musicians, and Kenny G, and Celine Dion, and Jim Carrey, we could, we could send those people out to, as the ambassadors, you know, for that, I think we should just send a Labrador, you know, I mean, we can get to the intelligent connection later on, but we just, if there was ever the embodiment of, I'm so glad you're here. You're awesome. I know nothing about you, and I love you. That's dogs. Absolutely and utterly, I love dogs. They're wonderful. Oh, okay, so I, I like to go, you know, to the supermarket and stuff like that, and I put a backpack on, and I go down, and I, you know, buy the stuff. On the way to the supermarket, there's a Labrador. I, I've known this dog since it was a little pup. And every single time I walk past, I'll it'll stick my hand through and just give it a pat. And it gets all excited because I then go and find a, you know, a, a stick or a tweak or something and throw it. And it's like, oh my God, you've got a stick. One of the cool things I've seen is I'm not the only one 
uh, that that pats the dog. I'm not the only one. And I've seen a number of times the you know just people stopping past and it's just rubbing its belly. And and what the most fantastic thing is, even though I've you know I I I gave it a bit of space to make sure that the the dog is is you know has this at one on one time. The moment I turn up, it's like, oh my god, you're here. It's so good. And again, you know, I, I do the, the rubbing the belly and stuff like that. And I grab a stick and it'll run and chew it and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I love dogs. Here is a cool story. It's a typical one, but I, I love reading these out. So, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and indulge myself. This comes from uh, Winnipeg. A family dog that went missing in Brendan turned up days later in Ontario town, more than 2,400 kilometres away. In miles, that's about 1,800, I want to say. Okay, let's just um, let's just do Siri on this one because I want to see how good I am at math. I think I got a C in high school. What's 2,400 kilometres in miles? Okay. I wasn't too far off again you don't want me plotting the coordinates to land on the moon but it was okay i said 1600 is actually 1491.29 miles so so 1400 miles and 2400 kilometers uh, and in the 900 bc term i think that's about 24 cubits i don't know anyway 24,000 kilometers away from home, Ashley Will, who lived just outside of Manitoba's second largest city, has had her dog, Kevin, that is an awesome name, for about five years. Watch Final Space. There's a, there's a character there. Sorry, I, I digress. There's a, there's a TV show called Final Space, and there's, there's, a, there's a character, KVN, um, the anti-insanity robot called Kevin. Yeah, it's anyway. Check, check back. We'll we'll talk about that. Um, go watch that. Hit hit pause in this podcast. You can just go watch an entire series and binge, and then come back. I can't wait. It's cool. How good was that series? Wasn't it? It was. It's. It is both hilarious, stupid, and deadly. Oh, okay. You haven't seen it yet, because you just continued on. I'm serious. I'm gonna stop. Ready and go watch. How good was that series? Yeah, it is both wonderfully exciting and funny, but at the same time, it's really serious. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, we hate Kevin. (laughs) I love Kevin. Anyway, let's get back to this dog story. So, with Kevin, uh, she said that... um, Time she had strayed pretty close to her, but during the visit to a friend's house in Brendan on April 10th, Will said Kevin slipped out of the gate and disappeared. Don't worry, it's a, it's a happy ending. Will started a widespread search for her dog, posting pictures on social media and putting calls out on the radio and calling animal organisations in the area. Wouldn't it be nice if we had, I don't know, the power of SpaceX, NASA, and 
the other you know space organizations out there they could come together to have a global dog tracking system we can do this i'm sure it can be done you place a call and all of a sudden boop, 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 there's your dog there it is it's sniffing another dog's behind right now we should do this anyway so getting back to this she said i didn't know what to do from there so i kind of just sat there and i was sad will said Adding days went by and there was no word on where Kevin had gone. I wasn't giving up, she said. Good for you. But it was starting to get dark. About after a week, Will got a message from a woman in Ontario. I think we've got I have listeners podcast in Ontario. A big hi to listeners in Ontario. Hi. She called me and she said, don't freak out. I think I might have Kevin. Will said, the person calling. In an unexpected turn of events, Kevin had wound up in Whitby, Ontario, a town about 45 kilometres. Okay, let's do the mile thing again. 45 kilometres, I think, is about 30 miles. All right, Siri, let's do this. 45 kilometres in miles. 27.96 miles. That's not bad, I said 30, 27, it's practically exactly the same. Let's continue. Will said she learned when Kevin had slipped out of the gate at Brandon. He was uh, picked up by a trucker heading east. Big tip to the truckers out there. She said Kevin was dehydrated, so the trucker called an animal rescue and brought Kevin to Whitby. Kevin is now staying at the home of Will's relatives in in, uh, Toronto, but is prepared for a long road back to uh, Manitoba. Kevin was contacted and refused to comment. However, his tail was wagging profusely. Given the length of the journey and the COVID-19 travel restrictions of place in Ontario, it is not as simple as jumping in the car and bringing Kevin home. This is where Criticabs, a volunteer-based animal rescue transport, stepped in to help. Are we just not awesome Critter Cabs is an organisation. Great name, by the way. It is just outstanding. Oh, we're, we're great. Laurie Dennis, the co-founder of Critter Cabs, says 11 drivers have volunteered to participate in what she describes as a kind of relay. Each driver will drive Kevin for a 100-kilometre leg of the journey back to Toronto to the Manitoba border. Our drivers embrace it as a kind of feel-good story where there's not a lot on these days, Dennis said. That's true. But you know what? You look around. There's plenty of feel-good stories out there. I saw a dog get its belly papped, you know, patted. That's a, that's a feel-good story. I think it is just the kind of world coming together thing that, yeah, we'll get him home. Dennis said this is the longest drive Critter Cab has ever been involved with. Kevin will start his long journey home on Friday, and Will is set to pick him up at the Manitoba border on Saturday. That's 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 yesterday. We should we should check in. It's almost like I have no words. But all the best words to everybody that is a part of this, she said. <laughs> My heart is so full. 
It's just not real until he's here. How cool is that? There's a picture of Kevin. Kevin looks adorable. Uh, he's got that, I'm looking out the window, and I'm trying to do some algebra in my head at the same time whilst comprehending what's going on. I'm going to put a post of this up on the website, so check it out. We cross now live to the town of Mungo. Have you ever heard of Mungo? Okay, you probably haven't. It's about... It's in the central Australia. You can just open up your Google Maps if you, you know, you want to check it out. It's a cool place. Now, if I was going to get in the car in Melbourne, where I live, after I've loaded up on coffee, of course, and I drove due north, um, it's about six hours, six and a half hours north, just, you know, obeying all all uh, traffic laws and stuff like that. And I arrived to the lovely small town of Mungo. It's really cool. Now, here's what's going on in Mungo. Okay, so autumn is generally a busy time for the visitors of Mungo's National Park. Many will be taking advantage of the newly implemented online booking system for Mungo's Shearer's Quarters accommodation. National Parks and Wollandra uh, WHA unit staff are currently working on more training for the Discovery Rangers. The program aims to continue to develop skills for the new current program of guided tours and also the delivery of the new activities to engage with many school groups interested in learning about Mungo as part of the national curriculum. Discovery Rangers are also involved in the Wilder Quest. In May, they will be engaged in the workshops with the WNPWS statewide program. Now, in Mungo, um, they have these really cool things where you can do, you can go on these discovery walks and tours. So, uh, this is with the local Aboriginal community, so you can go there and learn about uh, the you know, Aboriginal law and arts and crafts of the area. Now, they've got these cool sort of morning tag-along tours. So, you can they've got a whole schedule there. Um, visit mungo.com.au uh, and you can check it out. It's pretty cool, actually. So it's a, it's a lovely rural outback town of Mungo. I'm not too sure of the population of it, but it's just delightful. Now, they have themselves a newsletter. I'm going to put the newsletter in, 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 the, uh, in the show notes. And at the bottom of the newsletter, um, they have a wedged tail eagle that one of the local people, Leanne Mitchell, took a photo of. And some awesome person has taken that photo and turned it into a coloring thing so yeah you can just go ahead and print that out and give it to your kids or yourself if you just want some zen time wasn't there a while there where coloring books went nuts and everyone sort of bought those well you don't need to you can take this wedged tail eagle um drawing from mungo and color it in yourself you can do any color you want if you want you don't have to be traditional if this, if you feel that this is your moment to become a budding artist, let's say that you're Pablo Picasso, and you're you've just downloaded this PDF of Mungo, and you're considering of doing one of the, you know, one of the tours, uh, the morning tagalong or the morning foreshore or the afternoon tagalong tours. But before you do, you see this wedged tail eagle that looks kind of like a photocopy. 
and you decide to color it in, but you go outside the lines because that's what you do. Yeah, think about it. So give it a shot. Uh, download that, um, color it in, or or don't. Completely up to you. And um, enjoy. That's Mungo. That is, we're going to check in from time to time on the local little places around Australia. We have a few. This land is massive. It is absolutely massive and it's absolutely beautiful. And there is thousands of little towns, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly billions of little towns in Melbourne and Australia where they've got these little things just like this. And I'm just going to pop in from time to time and check them out. So that is the town of Mungo. Which brings me quite seamlessly to Vertical Farms. If you, if you don't know the connection between Mungo and Vertical Farms, I'm just going to leave that there for you to ponder. Anyway, Vertical Farms, check this out. In Compton, California... They're building a massive vertical farm that will save water, land, and eliminate, eliminate need for pesticides. The vertical farm, which is under construction in Compton, will be an unassuming 95,000 square foot warehouse. You know, I'm just going to assume that that's normal. I, I don't have any comprehension. Here's the thing. When it comes to the size of a house, I have a spot in my brain that should be dedicated for taking something such as, you know, the square feet and then knowing how big or small that is. It's only, you know, it's it's a thousand squares. I can't, I cannot fathom that to be big, small. It could be the size of a state. It could be small enough to fit a grain of rice in. I wouldn't know. So I'm just going to go ahead and put this at default size whenever I think of a warehouse. I think we're all thinking of a warehouse, right? You know, it's a warehouse. It's square. It's It's got a warehouse name on the front. It's a warehouse. I'm just going to go ahead and assume that it's a warehouse size when they say that it's unassuming. It sounds a lot. 95,000 square feet. I'm looking at my foot right now and I'm just, if there was 95,000 of those, that's that's a lot of feet. Yeah, that's a lot of feet. Anyway, let's get back to the vertical gardens. So when it's up and running, the interior will look like something out of the future, complete with robots, rows and rows of vertical crops, and an LED lights to replace the sun. The future. Actually, it kind of feels like the present now, doesn't it? We've got robots. We've got LED lights. I'm not going to put it down. It sounds fantastic. They're kind of the new version of the tractor. One of the cool things about vertical farming is that it takes farming out of the country and brings it into the city. Described Dr. Nate Story, the chief science officer and co-founder of the vertical farming com company, Plenty. Plenty says the vertical farm will have the capacity to produce 365 harvests per year of high quality leafy greens. Now that term harvest is just a little loose. For instance, I had a tomato plant. I didn't plant it. I, I had one a couple of years ago. And when spring came around, um, 
backstory, sorry. I have this really cool veggie patch thing. Uh, it's lined by old railway, wooden railway sleepers that are just really cool. And it's about, I'm going to say it's about 12 metres long, 13 metres long, for, uh, 13 metres long. It's like right up the side of the house and it's about 4 metres wide. Nah, 3 metres wide. I really have an urge now to go outside and measure it just to be exact. But let's just settle on that. It's three metres wide and it's that long. And I can grow all kinds of stuff. And I do. I have, you know, vegetables and herbs. Um, herbs. Legitimate herbs, not coated herbs. And all other stuff. It's really cool. Now, I didn't plant any tomato plants this year. Just one thing or another. I didn't get around to it. But... <laughs> out of the blue, this tough little plant decided to start growing. And growing and growing and growing. And so I thought, you know what? Why not? I didn't sort of even replant it and move it. I just kept it where it was, put a couple of stakes up, and decided to see what would happen. You know, give it a fighting chance. You go, you. Yeah. It was kind of like the tomato plant version of emotional support. So I was giving it emotional support when, in fact, I was giving it water and my coffee grounds. That tomato plant grew. Oh my, which is normal, but it really, really grew. And it was absolutely and utterly amazing. And I had a bumper harvest. It was wonderful. I was eating tomatoes Every day, I could have even started like doing sauces and stuff like that. I don't want to boast and make myself out to be a bigger person than I really am. This is no competition. However, I could have made my own sauces. And I could have bottled those sauces. And there probably would have been about four or five bottles. Small size. But still, four or five bottles. lots of tomatoes am I comparing myself to a 97,000 95,000 square foot vertical farm you know what we're not quite in the same league but we're both doing our bit for that lots of tomatoes I'm going to get back to this story from day one it's perfectly controlled we don't use pesticides. I didn't use pesticides either. I used a net. It did exactly the same thing. Although I did like to leave a couple of fruit for the bugs and stuff. Because, you know, they've got to eat too. So we don't use pesticides. There's no birds flying over the field pooping on the produce. There's nothing to wash off. I washed mine. It's usually not touched by human hands ever. So we have a safe, clean product that is ready to eat right out of the package, he says. Plenty aims to create scalable indoor vertical farms. The first Plenty Farm opened in San Francisco in 2018. Now, their latest location is under construction right here in Southland in Compton. 
It's a community that, that I think is going to really enjoy both the jobs that we're bringing and the opportunity to engage in agriculture. It's part of their tradition, Story says. To have a vertical farm that has the ability to produce organic fresh fruits and vegetables with little space and little uh, and a little bit of water is just incredible. And I believe their mission to combat food insecurities right now is in line with our vision. So yeah, a vertical farm. And again, from the, the picture, it's like a vertical farm. Which was equally as impressive as the tomato plant that I had this year. Equally as impressive. Some say that with the right amount of zooming lenses, you could see my tomato plant from space. Just going to take a moment to sink that in. I'm assuming you're asleep right now, so you can't actually hear what I'm saying, but I believe you could see that from space. It's over now, because it's obviously we're going into the winter months. Um, I saved some seeds, and those tomato plants will be back, and I might just do some bottling of some hot sauces uh, next year. I started browsing a, a hot sauce subreddit group there was six hours of my life that just went by it's a fantastic area do you know that there's a whole process in bottling hot sauce you can't just you know puree it up and put it in a bottle and off you go oh no oh no there's a whole process i have chili plants too now okay let's talk about plants during the pandemic and the whole lockdown I went a bit nuts with plants. Yeah. So I have this cool little area um, that I like to chill. And um, it's called an alfresco, which sounds really pretentious. But it's just this outdoor area that's kind of not quite outdoors. Anyway, it was a little bit barren. And so I discovered I went to a cafe um, before lockdown. And I noted something really cool. They had indoor plants, but they weren't technically the quote-unquote normal indoor plants they were lemon trees yeah and i was you know maybe really really high on, on the coffee that i had this morning it was fantastic and i was talking to the owner and the guy gino really casual guy uh was saying yeah they grow no fruit but they grow they look fantastic so trip down to bunnings and Literally like 15, 20 bucks for like a two meter high little, you know, lemon tree. Put that thing in a pot and bang, you have yourself a really nice indoor plant that's got a lot of cubic centimeters. So it's not like a little thing. You have your more green to a dollar ratio, if that makes sense. And so I bought myself one of those and a kumquat plant. And I thought I'd stop there. I, I didn't stop there. I kept going. I have now about, I want to say, 15 plants. <laughs> They're not all lemon trees and stuff like that. I kind of discovered a bunch of all cool, uh, cool other little plants. And I have a cool row of the herbs. Again, I'm not using inverted quotations on the words herbs. I'm talking thyme and rosemary and oregano or oregano. Oregano. I have those there as well. And so they're really cool. 
Yeah, so it's taken the place and it makes it look really, really tranquil. It does. It's really cool. So I chill there on a morning, because um, during, again, during the lockdown, really couldn't go anywhere. And so, yeah, it, it just it just made it nice. So, yeah, that's... That's my plans. Which brings me to a Roman stepping stone. This is actually... This is really cool. A seemingly dull marble slab used for 10 years as a stepping stone in an English garden is actually a rare ancient Roman engraving. A new analysis finds the discovery surprised its owner. Have you ever seen that show TV? Um, uh, Antiques Roadshow. It's so amazingly, delightfully British. I go to my my mum's place and... Every now and then they have the Antics Roadshow. And I think I do what every other, you know, sibling does when they go and visit their parents. Like, oh, God, this Antics Roadshow is on. And you end up being absolutely and utterly glued to it. So, if you haven't heard about that TV show, it's basically English people going around to various towns doing a fair. And all the local people, they bring out their old stuff and see if it's worth anything. And it, it's fantastic. There's... it. How do I describe this? Okay, so it starts off with some lovely lady named Mavis. And she just brings this thing in. It's like, oh yeah, I I thought I'd bring it in because, you know, uh, it's it's been just gathering dust around this place and I thought I'd just bring it in and see if it's, it's worth some of it. You know, just uh, there's that. And then... The enthusiasm by the 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 guy, um, the assayer, the the valuer. I'm not too sure. And the way they describe the item is just fantastic. Oh, look here! This is fantastic. The the you know the assayer would would say, if you look here, you can see these engravings here. This is classic, classic postmodern neo. Work and um, oh yes, it actually has the repair date here, and this was done during uh, the Victorian era. Uh, I would say seventeen hundred for this. This is remarkable. It's been kept in amazing condition, and if this was going for auction, I would I would easily say this would get about twenty thousand pounds. And the look on the, you know, I thought I'd just bring it in person. Apologies for the English accents, by the way. The look on their face, you know, it's like a family heirloom. Oh no, they would never consider selling it. And the look on their faces, I am going to hock this thing so quickly. Anyway, it's delightful. So it reminded me of that. I just wanted to take a little trip down memory lane of watching the Antiques Roadshow. Uh, which sometimes there's actually uh, moments where the person will say, this is absolutely splendid. However, it did come in a collection of four, and you only have three. So without the fourth, it's absolutely and utterly worthless. Sorry. So sorry. <laughs> Tragic. Anyway, let's get back to this this stepping stone thingy. 
A discovery surprised its owner who learned that the 25-inch long 63 centimeters, oh thank you, did the conversion for me, slab a stone had previously used as a stair while mounting her horse, dated to 2nd century AD, and is now worth about $20,000. See, it's one of those antiques roadshows. Oh, this slab, this, this concrete slab here. See the Roman numerals there? Yes, this, I, I, I would say this is worth, you know, 20,000 pounds. However, no one knows how the marble masterpiece ended up in England. I'd say it was taken by boat. That's just me, my opinion. It was likely carved in Greece or Asia Minor, the modern-day Turkey, according to the statement from Woolley and Wallace, classic English names, a UK auction house that is handling the sale of the slab. Some of the stone's history um, is known. It was unearthed from a rock garden in White Parish, a village in south and southern England about 20 years ago, according to Woolley and Wallace, which again sounds like a children's TV show. Anyway, then the woman who owns the stable used the mud-covered stone for a decade as a mounting block until one day she noticed a laurel reef carved on its surface. An archaeologist who assessed the slab revealed that it was a rare find. Its inscription reads, The people and the young men honour Demetrius, son, Metrodorus, the son of Lucius. Although the ancient Roman Empire extended to the British Isles, this slab wasn't made locally. It was likely brought to England about 300 years ago, according to Woolley and Wallace. I'm going to try and do another English accent now because I'm having fun. Artifacts of this type often come to England uh, as a rare uh, result of the grand tours in the late 18th and 19th centuries. When wealthy aristocrats world tour of Europe, learning about classical art and culture, don't you know? Will Hobbes, the antique specialist, and William Wallace said in the statement, We assume that's how it entered the UK, but... What is complete mystery is how it ended up in the domestic garden. That's where we'd like the public's help. By Jove. The rock garden in White Parish is a part of a house built in the mid-1960s, and the auctioneers are hoping that someone might recall details or people's involvement in its, uh, with its construction. And i try another English accent now, because again I'm having... So much fun. There's plenty of possibilities of where the stone might have originated, Hobbes said, English country known house. Cowsfield House in Boxmoor's house was very close to the White Parish and the de uh, demolished in 1949, after having the requisite by the British arms during the war, he said. I might try the Thomas the Tank Engine one now. But we also know the house. I uh, don't know how to do that. Anyway. But we also know a house um, at what is now a family-themed park. Porkson Park was destroyed by fire in 1963. And so probably rubble from there was reused and the building sites in the area shortly afterwards. Said Thomas. Previously, Willie and Wallace planned to auction off the slab this February. But the auction house has since changed the time frame 
to spring. So, which is now. So, if you're thinking about owning a slab of concrete that was built during the Roman era and was used by horses uh, during that time, then, well, you have time to go and buy yourself that concrete slab. Um, bring your money. It's going to go for about 20000 yeah, about 20,000, 15,000 pounds. So enjoy. Or don't. So that's the episode for today. Thank you very much. I really hope you relaxed. And if you've just ducked off to sleep, then you wake up tomorrow morning refreshed and relaxed. And not knowing why you're speaking with a British accent because of my subliminal, subliminal hinting, don't you know? Anyway, absolutely lovely to have you, so do pop in again soon. There'll be another episode coming out very, very soon. Be sure to subscribe, and uh, if you can just go ahead and give me one of those five-star ratings, or four, or three, or if you're just, you know, fiendly and ghastly, go ahead and give me a two-in-one, and then a jolly good comment there in your podcast thing. That'll be most appreciative. And there'll be another episode soon. So if I don't, you know, speak to you then, I hope you have a wonderful day. Take care. And bye-bye.